The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. This is love. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, let's go before the Lord in the word of prayer. Uh, Father God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name, just uh, thanking you uh, for uh, all that you do, for your love that you pour out on us so generously, Lord. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would uh, decrease uh, me and increase yourself. I pray that, Father God, you would be heard and felt through the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Father God, give us the grace to actually apply whatever you tell us on today. I just pray that you would uh, prepare the grounds of our heart uh, for the seeds of your word uh, and that from that uh, transformation in our lives would happen. Uh, it's in your mighty sons, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, in the 1994 NBA playoffs, uh, in the Eastern Conference semifinals to be exact, uh, the Chicago Bulls were tied 102 uh, to 102 with the New York Knicks. It was 1.8 seconds left on the clock, just enough time to get off one last shot. So at this point in time on the Chicago Bulls, uh, Scottie Pippen was the star player on the team. Uh, Michael Jordan had retired for a moment. And so what's customary in the NBA is that the star player always takes the last shot. Little boys grow up their whole life dreaming about taking that last shot and winning the game for their team. It's, it's every star athlete's dream. And Scottie Pippen thought that he had worked hard enough and uh, Michael Jordan had retired. And, and so this is his time to shine. This is his time uh, to take the last shot. And so when they went to the huddle, you know, that's what Scottie's expecting. And so the coach pulls out the clipboard and he's getting ready to draw up the play. And Scottie's expecting uh, for, the, for him to say something like, give Scottie the ball, let him shoot it. That's not what happens. Uh, instead, the coach, Phil Jackson, draws up the play for another player, Tony Kukoc. And Tony Kukoc and Scotty already had a little rivalry going on. It, it already wasn't that much love in the Bulls locker room. So Scotty found out that it was Tony that was going to shoot that glory shot that he had been waiting for all these years because he had to, you know, back up Michael Jordan. So he had been waiting for this for a long time. And so when he found out that he wasn't going to be able to take that last second shot, true story, he literally throws his towel, uh, steps out of the huddle, says, I'm sick of this. Those are his exact words. I'm sick of this. Goes, sits at the end of the bench, has a few uh, colorful words uh, with the coach, uh, and says that I'm not getting in the game. If I don't get to shoot the last second shot, if I don't get to shoot the glory shot, I'm, I'm not even getting in the game. So literally that's what happened. The Bulls go uh, on the court with four players. Coach have to call the timeout, put somebody else in just to make it work. And so that night, the Bulls went back on that court, man, a discouraged, a distracted, uh, and a divided team. Uh, Tony Kukoc hit the game, winning shot. They actually won the game. But uh, what was the big news on that night was that there was no love in the Chicago Bulls locker room. Imagine that. Same jersey. Same team. Same locker room. On the same roster. And they still don't love each other. That means it's possible to be in the same church. 
on the same church roster, in the same city, and worship the same Jesus, and still not love each other. Uh, as we come to our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, Paul is dealing with a Corinthian church that is divided. Uh, they're very gifted, but they're very immature. And in particular, they're, they're divided and they're fighting about spiritual gifts. And so uh, Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, and in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, uh, to deal with this division that's going on around these spiritual gifts. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what we see is Paul just laying out what the spiritual gifts are. And so uh, th- those gifts, uh, the word for it is pneumatica, uh, pneumatica. That's the Greek word, pneumatica, for gifts. And that's God's pouring out of his spiritual gifts on, on Christians, uh, each, each Christian receiving uh, some or one of these spiritual gifts for the building up of his body and for the furtherance of the gospel. And so God has poured out by the grace of the Holy Spirit, has poured out his, his love onto people and poured out these gifts on the body so that they can use these gifts uh, for the building up for the body and for the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul lays that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he, he compares the, the church to a body. He says you have arms, you have legs, and you have uh, noses and eyes and ears, and all of them are important. Every uh, aspect of the body is important. So he lays that out in 12. In 14, he goes on to talk about uh, order, just some general instructions on how we're going to use these gifts in a way that's orderly in the church, in a, in a way that functions. So we get just a, a laying out of all of the gifts in 12. Then in 14, we get general instruction on how to use these gifts in a way that is orderly uh, in the church. Uh, but there was something missing, and that's where we pick up on uh, in 13. Uh, we, we talk about the context, the environment that these gifts are to exist in. And that's a context uh, and an environment uh, of love. They were so hung up on, on these gifts. And one gift in particular uh, they were hung up on, they were, they were hung up on this gift of, of tongues. They were crazy about it. They made a really big deal about it. All right. And so Paul is uh, trying to put this gift in its proper uh, context. And so um, which leads us to our first point. Love is the more excellent way. Uh, And so he says, uh, don't be so hung up on tongues. Don't be so hung up on the showy upfront stuff, but be focused on love. Pursue love. Uh, and so just so we can get a, a, an idea of what love means, because love can, can be misconceptualized uh, in our day and we can get a wrong picture of love. And so there, there are a few ways uh, that uh, love is used in the Bible. Uh, the first way uh, is eros. It has to do with uh, sexual love. It has to do with passion. And that would have been uh, very common in the Corinthian uh, culture during that time. Paul isn't talking about eros uh, to the Corinthian church. You have phileo, which is a friendship love. It's a love that gives and takes. And so you give a little and I give a little. And uh, that's phileo love. That's mutual edification. That's not the type of love that Paul is talking about when he's talking to uh, the Corinthian church. Then we get to the word agape. Agape is sacrificial love. It's a love that gives without expecting anything in return. And that's the type of context that these gifts are to operate in. They should be uh, used in a way that gives and edifies uh, the body and glorifies God. And so he's telling them to work out their gifts in this agape uh, form of love. And so I'll go to uh, verse 1. He's getting on tongues again. He says, 
Uh, since she's so excited about tongues, since she thinks tongues are such a big deal and you're just all divided and crazy about it, he says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just a noise maker. And so I think it's important that we... Uh, Kind of break down what he meant by tongues. Uh, that word tongues, uh, that gift of tongues was the ability to speak fluently in another language uh, that you didn't grow up learning. It was the ability to speak fluently in another language that you didn't grow up learning. So it's just like if I went to France and was all of a sudden able to carry on a conversation in French. That was this remarkable uh, gift of tongues uh, that uh, Paul is uh, referring to in the body. And some people in, in this time uh, had that uh, gift. But what they were doing were they weren't using it in this edifying way. They weren't using it uh, to, to lead people to Christ. They weren't using it uh, to win people to Christ who may have spoken a different language. Instead, they were in the gathering uh, just saying things uh, that no one could understand. And it wasn't edifying anyone or building anyone up. As a matter of fact, they were just using it to bring glory and attention to themselves. And that pride caused crazy division uh, in the church. And what Paul is saying is, let's just be hypothetical, Corinthians. Let's imagine if you can speak in the tongues of man, even in the tongues of angels. It still means nothing if you don't use that gift in love. And that's what he's trying to get them to understand. Uh, let's go to verse 3. He says, if I give away all I have... And I, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That is extreme stuff. I hope we don't just rush over it. He says, if I give up all that I have, liquidate all the assets, clean out the bank account, clean out the house and give it all away. If I do that for some kind of selfish ambition for the glory of myself in any kind of way, it means nothing in the economy of God. He says, if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's martyrdom. It seems quite noble if I'm willing to die for something or for some cause. But if I'm doing that for self and some kind of selfish ambition and not for the glory of God, not for the, uh, the building up of God's church, not so that the lost can be saved. But if I'm doing that for myself, it means nothing, zero in the economy of God. And so it doesn't matter how impressive it is. It can be as, as impressive as tongues and speaking fluently in another language. It can be as extreme as martyrdom. But if it's not done in love, it means nothing. And, and what that causes us to understand is that we can't just judge whether an action is love just by the action. We have to assess the motives. Love has to be assessed also uh, by motive. Uh, and that's why us as Christians always have to be asking ourselves the question, why am I doing this? Whatever it is, why am I doing this? Me as a preacher of the gospel, I have to be extra careful. Terrence, why are you doing this? Are you just trying to preach a good sermon? Are you just trying to impress someone? Are you just trying to bring attention to yourself? Why am I doing this? And that's why even on this morning, I have to ask you, I ask God, please put my motives through the fire and burn off anything that's not of you. We have to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Um, us, in the, us in ministry uh, in particular, uh, it's, and I want to say this parenthetically, sometimes we can put a lot of hope in gifts and external things. 
sometimes we can say, if I only just had a bigger budget, or if I only had that person's gifts or that person's personality, if I only had this building or that building or whatever, and we put our hope in these things, and what God is hoping for his church to do is activate this gift of love. It's the more excellent way. And that's what he hopes that we get and understand. So if I go to a multi-ethnic church and have not love, I gain nothing. If I write big checks to non-profits but have not love, I gain nothing. If, if I mentor and teach kids in the hood, Terrence, and have not love, I am nothing. Do you love people? Do we love people? Do we love each other? And Paul helps us out to understand a little bit of what it uh, truly means to love. And so what he does next is just paints a picture of what love really looks like, just in case we're a little confused about it, uh, which leads us to our next point. Love is a verb. Love is an action. For love to really be love, it must demonstrate itself in some kind of way. And so uh, what Paul does in verses, uh, for the rest of the the chapter, as a matter of fact, he just gives us a a picture of what real love looks like. And I'm not going to be able to get through all of those this morning. But he says stuff like, love is patient, Uh, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, Uh, love is not arrogant, Uh, love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Uh, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. He, he lays this out for us in a way so he can. So he, he's saying, just in case you're confused about what love is, this is what it looks like. It's not an emotion. Uh, it's not a feeling. Uh, but it's something that's really uh, practiced and lived out in some kind of way with a right motive uh, behind it. And so uh, I just want to deal with a couple of these this morning. Uh, Let's start with uh, patience. Uh, In order for patience to be real patience, uh, it must act out uh, in some kind of way. And so uh, that word for patience, the original word for patience in the Greek that Paul was using was makrothumeo. Makrothumeo. It means to be slow towards. It means to operate uh, with the maximum restraint. Holding oneself back in the maximum restraint. It means to bear long with. And I just want to use the, uh, a, a picture of it. It means to have a short, I mean a long fuse as opposed uh, to, a, to a short fuse. It's kind of like if you grew up watching cartoons like yeah, Tom and Jerry, you know, used to give the cat the little uh, short fuse and bam, just blows up everywhere. Love isn't like that. Uh, love is the long fuse. It means I bear with you for a period of time. It says, I don't blow up on you, brother in Christ, just because we disagree about politics. I'm not about to blow up on you over that. I'm not going to blow up on you, brother in Christ, because we disagree on some non-essential doctrine. I'm going to have the long fuse. I'm not, I'm not going to put people on eggshells who are different from me and make them feel intimidated and afraid to say something or do something so that I can pounce on them, all right, and say that all those Christians are hypocrites, It doesn't do that. It waits. It's patient. It endures. And that's what love looks like uh, in in the body of Christ. 
the next word, he says, love is kind. That word means to be uh, tender-hearted, concerned, and useful. It's not just being nice. Uh, It's not just being sweet. And it's definitely not weakness, as it's often sometimes misconstrued. But love makes itself useful. Kindness makes itself useful at the expense of itself and to the benefit of someone else. Kindness, real kindness, ain't just sweetness. It ain't just a soft word. Real kindness makes itself useful at the expense of itself and to the benefit of someone else. Uh, A few months ago, uh, Ashley and I were uh, driving in Whitehaven. I was driving her uh, to work at her school in Whitehaven where she teaches at. Uh, And I saw this guy uh, riding his bicycle in the same direction as us with a little girl on the back of it. And so I saw that one day, and then we were driving another day, uh, and I saw the same thing, this guy riding his bicycle uh, with a little girl on the back of it holding on to his back. And I was like, Ashley, you see this guy? Like, he's like riding his bicycle, and he's like riding from far. Like, and she was like, yeah, uh, that's, one of my, uh, that's one of my students, Roshana. And her dad does that every day. <laughs> five miles to the school on the bike, five miles back home. Five miles back to the school on the bike to pick her up, and five miles back home. Rain, sleet, or snow. That's real kindness. He didn't just say, hope you get to school. (laughs) He says, no, I'm going to make myself useful at the expense of myself and to your benefit. And that's what real love that's acted out in kindness uh, looks like, brothers and sisters, in Christ. Uh, that's the type of love that changes things. That's what love looks like uh, with skin with skin on. And so what Paul is telling the Corinthian church, stop getting so caught up in the showy, upfront stuff. Stop worrying about who sings the solo, Corinthian church. Stop worrying about what happens on Sunday because Monday is coming and there are people all around you who are desperate for you to exercise this type of love in their lives. Their family members, friends, neighbors, strangers in our city right now in Memphis who are desperate for us to exercise this kind of agape love uh, in the lives uh, of them and in our city. So uh, love uh, is a verb, but love also never ends. Uh, Verse 8 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And verse 13 goes on to say, uh, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, uh, but the greatest of these is love. And so what Paul is saying is that Corinthians... That gift of tongues that you're so crazy about, that you're fighting about and so divided about. One day, it's not even going to be here. It's not going to even be needed. You're not going to need to uh, speak in a different language uh, to lead someone to Christ because you're going to be in heaven with Christ. It's going to be no longer needed. You're so hung up over healing. But we're going to heaven one day where there won't be even a need to heal anyone. You're so worried about preaching of the word, you're going to a place where everybody's going to already believe the word because it's going to become manifested to them and it's going to be realized to them uh, in a real way. They're going to be present 
with Jesus. You're not going to have to preach Jesus no more. So, so don't get so uh, hung up on it. He's trying to get them to see something bigger. And so all these things that you, you're pursuing in this life, uh, for love, you, you won't need to anymore. You, your love that you've been longing, the love that you've been longing for your entire life is going to be standing right in front of you. And you're going to see them clearly, like face uh, to face. And so, friends, while we're still on earth and the clock is ticking, pursue love. Uh, pursue love uh, in the context of, of, of church uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, pursue love in this community that's desperate for it. Don't get hung up uh, on the small stuff. And so now you're probably asking the question, like, who can actually do this, Terrence? Like, who can actually be that patient? Who can actually be that kind? Who can actually, who actually has that long of a fuse? Come on now, keep it real. <laughs> the only person that's completely patient, that's completely kind, that's completely humble, with 100% pure motives is God himself. God loves like that. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As Jesus lay on that wooden cross, he was patient. That macrothumeo, patient, maximum restraint. He could have got up at any point, but he didn't. He stayed there and bore the sins of the world, the guilt and the shame of the world on his back. That's patient. And even now, like with us, he is still patient. For the person that doesn't know him in relationship right now, he is still patient with you. As he sits at the right hand of the Father, he has given us time to repent still. He's given sinners time to repent still. He is patient. And for those of us who know Christ and have accepted him as Lord and Savior, he is still patient with you. He's not going to pull it back. He's not going to pull his love back. He's not up there waiting saying, well, if you do that one more time, I'm done with you. It's not how his love works. He is patient. Jesus loves like that. And he is kind. It's his kindness that draws us to repentance in the first place. He is kind. And so when he sat on that cross, he was, he, was, uh, he, was, he was kind. He made himself useful. Him who knew no sin became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. He made himself useful. Jesus is that kind of kind. And it's his love and his kindness that's working out every day in our lives and drawing us closer to him. So that's crazy big love that seems unreal uh, in the world that we currently live in. That's crazy for someone to love that big and to love that crazy and to be that kind and to be that patient with us. That's crazy love. But I just want to leave us with this, uh, friends. When we are loved big, we're able to love big. It's the only way you're going to be able to pull it off. When we love that big and that crazy and we accept that big and crazy love in our lives and that grace and that forgiveness, 
like the song we sang earlier, you know, the waves crashing over and over and over us again and again. When we accept that into our hearts and we truly believe that gospel and live it out, that's the only way we could possibly share that with someone else. That's the only way I could potentially have a long fuse and not a short fuse. And so when we are loved big, that empowers us to love big. And so why in the world wouldn't we accept a love like that?